This is Bad Movies We Love, part of the Scheiss Podcast Network. Hello, once again, Bad Movie Lovers. I am your host, Nick Scheiss, and I am back from vacation. And I return to you an engaged man. That's right, I am betrothed. I am also a little congested, as you can hear. But today, we're back with a new episode. It's season two, episode 15. Got another one in the can. I've got another interview scheduled for next week and a couple of more lined up in the wings, just waiting for their opportunity to come on. But today, I was joined by some friends from Film Club and the hosts of the upcoming podcast, Cinema Shit Show. And that's Ben, and you know him, you love him, he's been a guest on this show before, Mr. Nick's Eclipse. And the three of us got together to talk about a film with a reputation that certainly precedes it. Paul Verhoeven's 1995 NC-17 cult classic, Showgirls. movie we're covering has a lot of boobs every time it came on the screen i'm like this is the cheesiest shit i've ever seen while it was kind of hot i also was like this is really really gross gets into a conversation and then barfs that person just puked i wouldn't want to be anywhere near her mouth yeah, you, you can get a behind-the-scenes like hand job or something like that. The pool sex didn't mean anything to you? Give me millions of dollars to interview 200 exotic dancers for my next movie. Hey, Paul Rubens got busted in a, in a, in a porn theater, not, not a strip club. If he's a pimp, that is a weak pimp. I'm so cool with my bangs. Watch him flip in the wind. Down the stairs you go, bitch. And she instantly just pulls out a switchblade. Spray ketchup all over the place. It's all just insanity. I call it a trashter piece. Well, good evening, and thank you for joining me. This was a movie that that I watched again, but I had also watched, uh, I don't know, a couple months ago for another project that never came to fruition. But Ben, why don't you tell me first why you think that someone would say that Showgirls is a bad movie and maybe some of the reasoning behind why you wanted to bring it to this particular show. I think I was watching, I watched it twice last night. And one of the notes that I took was, I feel if they had slowed things down just a step that it wouldn't have been so erratic and chaotic. Like a lot of her dancing is very exaggerated and, 
you know, just like the dialogue and a lot of it seems kind of fast, like it doesn't feel like real life. And so I think that it just people didn't really know what to do with it. I think a lot of the backlash was, you know, Jesse from Saved by the Bell and her first movie is like full frontal nudity and uh, they didn't really know how to to separate the two characters I think um but for me it's uh I had a lot of fun with it I watched it fairly close to when it came out I didn't see it in the theater but um it's just always been a fun movie I like to recommend it to people who haven't seen it just to see their reactions um but yeah I I had I always have fun with it whenever I whenever I watch it I mean, I was like 11 when this movie came out, so I probably saw it around the time I was like 12. And so, of course, I like it when I'm 12. And it had been a large gap between probably seeing it in my early 20s and now that I'm closer to 40. It's a very different experience. And we'll we'll talk about a little bit uh, about that as we dive deeper in a little bit. But you brought a friend with you to the show. and. He's a friend of this show. He's been a guest a couple times. Nix, thank you for joining us, for being uh, Ben's bosom buddy and his backup. Welcome once again to the show, my friend. Hey, thanks so much. And thanks, Ben, for inviting me on. Um, this is your pick, but I am thrilled to be here with you, buddy. And did you, you said you just finished watching it uh, like an hour ago. And so I guess how long uh, between watches had it been before this most recent time? I saw it when it first came out um, at a theater. And um, <laughs> I had what kind of theater was that? Just a regular theater. This was like the <laughs> only NC-17 film to get a wide release um before the 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 stigma really started to take hold and they treated it like a rated x film um so just a, a regular you know warenberg amc whatever you go to uh it was all over the place um so i saw it back on original release and then i hadn't seen it again until now so i don't i'm not good at math so i don't know how many I don't know how many years that is. A bunch. Yeah, <laughs> I'm old. Um, but uh, yeah, so I I just I just finished I I started it on my lunch, and um, then I finished it right after work was over. And so yeah, it's it's pretty fresh in my mind. And I didn't watch it twice like like Ben, but um, I, I think I got a pretty good grasp on it. <laughs> Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I guess I benefit from having also watched it uh, fairly recently before this as well. So sort of a, a different mindset in watching films now than I had, you know, 15 years ago. But uh, you guys are working on your own thing. So, Ben, do you want to tell us why you you brought Nick's to the show today? Well, I like his uh, insight and his humor and his uh, wacky sensibilities. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think uh, it's gonna we're gonna have a lot of fun doing the our own podcast, which is called Cinema Shit Show, which actually was uh, named by 
by you, Nick. So a little bit, probably like half credit. I was thinking it and I just said shit show. And then somebody else said that was shit show. That was me. It, and it was a collaborative. Conf- yes, I confirmed that. Hey, you just read my mind, and so I mean, I'll I'll take fifty percent uh, credit, but you know, give your give yourself some credit as well. Uh, I saw the preview of the cover art, which looks great. Uh, I'm glad Scott is working with you guys on that. So I'm excited to listen to that first episode. Um, so you let me know when you guys get that up and running. I'll add the link in uh, to the show notes after the fact. The benefit of post-production, my friends. But Nix, I want to ask you too, since you're here in a in a supporting role. You and I just did a show not too long ago, like last week, probably, talking about Godzilla. And Godzilla is like the exact opposite of Showgirls in a lot of ways. So I'm curious for you in watching it and just finishing it. What do you think people say this is a bad movie for? If you if you had to nail it down to like one or two things that would stand out to you, that's like this is the thing that people probably hinge on as it being bad. I I think it probably comes down to most Verhoeven films mm-hmm. uh, is that it's completely over the top. Um. The I think Ben had mentioned the 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 dancing and how ridiculous that was. I mean, I've never been to Vegas. Maybe it is like that. I don't know, but it it's all absolutely ridiculous. Um, the a lot of the acting is over the top. Uh, the sex scenes <laughs> and and the sex the what tries to be sexual and erotic is completely over the top. I don't think there's anything about this movie that's absolute that's that's erotic in any way, Ex- except for may- maybe the kiss at the end between uh, Gina and uh, Elizabeth Berkeley in the hospital. That's the only one that really <laughs> rang true. Everything else seems completely fabricated um, because Verhoeven's telling this over the top um, story about uh, a girl trying to make her name for herself. She becomes a thing that she hates. Um, there's, uh, I feel so bad for Elizabeth Berkeley, but because uh, I don't think she's the worst part of the film, I actually think she kind of encapsulates what the character's supposed to be. But it's, yeah, I think it's the sheer over the topness of it, and um, people don't get that about a lot of Verhoeven's films, and I, I think that's what kind of tied into it. Yeah, that's a fair point, and I would say that. The last time I watched this, when I was watching it as part of a series of other stripper movies, I feel like her performance was just like so bad that it made the movie difficult to watch. And this viewing last night, I feel like I eased on that position quite a bit. And it wasn't nearly as uh, grating as I had experienced in the last watch. And in reading a little bit about the film i saw that verhoven had said you know he feels bad for her too because the decisions that you know she made with this character were encouraged by him he wanted her to be more strange more outlandish more crazy and you know knowing that she's coming from saved by the bell and she's sort of trying to you know reinvent herself and do the exact opposite of what she had been known for to take these big risks and 
to do full frontal nudity and not just what we see on screen. I mean, she was naked for, you know, how long are movies days, like 12, 16 hours sometimes. So she was naked basically all the time in front of the cast and like her being comfortable with that is one thing, but a, there's a lot of other big name actresses that turn down the opportunity uh, to be in this film for that reason. So I think she deserves some credit for being willing to like sort of stand in the line of fire in this case. And she is exaggerated. It is over the top. Like even her lipstick, her eyelashes, like everything about her is sort of like hyper realistic. The way she talks, the way she walks, the way she dances, everything is like cranked up to an 11. And I, one of the words that I read, what I think was, uh, sort of like pop star parody or something along those lines. And I totally saw it this time. And with this movie, it was always something where when I said it was a good movie or when I said it was a movie that's worth watching and it's not as bad as people said, I always pointed to uh, like its style, the coloration, sort of like the not giving a fuck attitude of we're going to make this kind of movie and it's going to be NC-17 and you're going to release it anyway kind of attitude. Like all of those things, I think, still come through in watching it. And oddly enough, it was a very different experience from the last time I watched it, where sort of all of the other context of the other films that I had watched around it seemed to adhere more to just like traditional filmmaking. There's a story, there's some sort of backstory that's going to come into play at some other time later down the line in the film. And with this, it's just a little bit more chaotic, a little more hectic, <clears throat> excuse me. And I think it is sort of off-putting in that way, but this is also a movie that gained a big cult following sort of after its box office, I don't know, failure although it didn't really like fail that bad. Uh, but it was put up on this pedestal to be a success coming off of the back of Basic Instinct and Robocop not too long before this. So it was set up to be successful financially, and it still was in the long run. But a lot of that came down the line with home video, uh, with rentals, things like that. And then it sort of became this movie that you watch because it is so bad and it starts to gain that sort of cult following for being this weird anomalous entry into Verhoeven's career. And then after that, it's we're at the point where, what are we like almost 30 years down the line now? And it's sort of uh, hit a stage of reappraisal once again. And I wish I knew about it beforehand because I would have made time to watch it. But there's a documentary called You Don't Know Me, spelled N-O-M-I, like her name in this movie. And it sort of like looks at the circumstances surrounding this film and just how it got made, why it bombed, all of that stuff. And more critics or more writers and like film historians are starting to circle back around and look at this uh through a different lens and sort of 
understand it in the context of Verhoeven's career a little bit differently than at the time that it came out. So it's interesting to see, you know, that this movie has had the sort of ebbs and flows that it has. It's had some low lows. It's had some interesting highs. I mean, right now on IMDb, it's ranked 589 in popularity and it's up 300 spots. So I don't know if that like is coinciding with, I think there's uh vinegar syndrome 4k remaster that just came out recently or is about to come out. So maybe that's why it's uh gained some of that traction, but I mean, it's got a horrible meta score and it's overall user rating is, you know, it's a five out of 10. So it's not, I guess, terrible, terrible, but it's fairly low for a very well-known uh, director who's, pretty much well liked and has been well received throughout the vast majority of his career and all his other works. So I'm curious, Ben, uh, is the vinegar syndrome DVD something that you a are aware of and B have ordered? Cause I know a lot of people in the group have been talking about all these vinegar syndrome orders that have been sort of lost in the mail or something. Yeah. So I miss the pre-order and actually worked out because the first uh, orders that they sent out, one of the discs had issues. So they actually had to resend out the movie um, and the vinegar syndrome store is down right now, but I will be ordering this one. So it's got some pretty cool uh, artwork and the case is pretty cool. And I guess there's some extras. Uh, I think that documentary is on there. Oh, that's um, cool. Yeah. So I think, I think it's it's starting to get to gain some momentum as far as uh, like you said, it's jumped 300 spots. So I think I think there's like a new generation who's seeing it for the first time and appreciating it. And, uh, you know, I think Vinegar Syndrome does a good job of of that, of kind of bringing movies back from the dead and giving them some attention. So that's cool. I mean, to think that this movie's like in the top not just the top thousand, but the top 600 right now and is up 300. Like that's a lot. Uh, and a lot of the movies that I've covered on this show have a lot more uh, in terms of volume when it comes to user rating. So it's a, it's an interesting balance and I'll be curious to see if uh, Elizabeth Berkeley ends up doing commentary on this or if that's one of the special features. Cause I read that she initially uh, was only paid a hundred grand for this movie, and then when they asked her to come back and do, or when I guess she volunteered to do commentary and had an asking price of like twenty five hundred bucks, and they denied that. So as far as I know, she was not given any sort of uh post credits uh speaking on the DVD extras. Yeah, I well, I was going to say exactly what you just said. Yeah, she asked for $2,500 and she was turned down. So, which is kind of crazy. That's not very much money at all for, for a commentary track. So, especially when that movie is going to sell quite, you know, quite a number of copies. So it's, it's kind of, kind of bizarre that they did that to her, but. Yeah, and I also read that I think it was the documentary that she came out and either presented or was there when the documentary uh, screened for the first time. So cool to see that she like has embraced the sort of, you know, reality of the situation like this movie more or less ruined her career. So I'm glad that she was able to, you know, stand up and 
take it in stride and still be there despite it, you know, having uh, such a big stigma around it. Oh, that's interesting because I, I hadn't I hadn't read um, about that. I had read about um, her. They wanted her to do. Um, they they recut it for um, for television. And they cut out like 45 minutes. And so they had to redub some lines. Oh, wow. And I think she, I think at that point she wanted like $250 or something just to redo her lines. And they wouldn't even pay her that at the time. So it's insane. I, I feel so bad for her. She, yeah, like you were saying, Nick, she really went out there and, and took a chance. And apparently she she lost her agent. I don't know yeah. if they separated. Uh, there's conflicting stories there. Nobody would talk to her for the longest time. Eventually, she did sh- end up, uh, you know, starring in, oh, or not starring in, but uh, having roles in some big Hollywood films. She went on to Broadway. She eventually did pick her, herself back up and make herself a, a nice little career. But um, just, yeah, she got... She took the brunt of the backlash for this film. Yes, she did. Not Verhoeven and not Esterhaus, who who wrote it. Those guys still went on and and did pretty good for themselves. I think Esterhaus eventually faded out of the limelight. But um, yeah, she she really took the brunt of it, and I feel so bad for her. Yeah, so I'm glad that, you know, she, I mean, she even came back and reprised her role on the renewed version of uh, Saved by the Bell as well. So nice to see that her career, like, rebounded eventually and that the stigma of, you know, like you said, I think being the the primary reason that this movie failed, which was not the case at all. I mean, <laughs> this movie failed for a number of reasons, but... Also, on the back end, when you really like look at financially how it did, this movie didn't fail at all. So to to leave her saddled with that, even in the wake of it, seems incredibly unfair to her. And it is. So unfortunately, that happened. But I want to take a moment to look at the trailer right now, because I don't I don't know if I ever saw a trailer for this movie. It was like. I was maybe a little bit too young for it at the time. I mean, I still saw it when I was really young, but I think I probably just heard about the movie as, you know, this NC-17 thing that existed because everyone was talking about it. It was very buzzy before it came out for all of the reasons of the Verhoeven and the nudity and all that. So let's go ahead and take a look at the trailer. Can you see this screen, gentlemen? I can. Yes. All right. Let's rock and roll. I hope they have some scenes of her running away because she does that a lot. She does. She's got a little bit of an awkward run to her as well, but she's probably wearing like ridiculous heels the whole time, too. Before we get on with the show, it's time for a quick word from our sponsor. The blistering desert heat can really do a number on your hair, whether you've been switching sweaty costume wigs all night or had a short evening of pool sex that has your locks all locked up. Stardust Shampoo and Conditioner is here to help. It's made with top-of-the-line aloe, green tea extract, argon oil, jojoba oil, jojoba oil? Probably a little baby oil, too. Let's just say it has all the oils you need to battle dry scalp, split ends, or brittle and damaged hair. Plus, as an added authenticity bonus, 
every bottle is loaded with tiny little exfoliating bits of the actual demolished Stardust Hotel and glitter from authentic Las Vegas strippers to make sure it really gets in there good. It might smell like cheap perfume, but it performs at salon quality. So remember to look for Stardust shampoo and conditioner at your local beauty supply store. Authentic hotel debris and Vegas glitter available while supplies last. And now, back to the show. All right, let's go. You gamble? No. Well, you gotta gamble if you're gonna win. I'm gonna win. You have to gamble if you wanna win. Oh, the trailer guy. doesn't play a part. <laughs> girls, the sure bets. Seems like Trailer Guy's brother. And Paul Verhoeven, the team that brought you the smash hit Basic Instinct, comes the most talked about movie of our time. Have you heard about this uh, movie called Showgirls? Trip goes legit. Showgirls. Way more behind the scenes footage than I typically see in a trailer. Showgirls. Showgirls. It is called Showgirls. Elizabeth Berkeley gets down to the bare facts about her new hot film, Showgirls. The planet couldn't get enough of Showgirls, as proven by a record-breaking 1.5 million hits per day on the World Wide website. Showgirls, the most controversial film of the year. Showtime. A bold and steamy look at the inside world of Las Vegas after dark. It swept the country with the largest box office gross for an NC-17 film ever. Opening on an unprecedented 1,388 screens with a first week per screen average of $5,800. Oh, this is the VHS promo reel. Yeah, you got us the promos. Girls is All right. Prime for rental. Coming to home video viewers in unprecedented three months after its theatrical run. I like how they said the worldwide website. Right. Showgirls.com. Everyone's been waiting to rent at your most profitable time of the year. We take the cash, we cash the check, we show them what they want to see. On November 6th, MGM UA will announce the video release. Order close is December 6th. And on December 26th, Showgirls hits the street. Ooh, just in time for Christmas. It's guaranteed right. to make it one of the largest video rental titles of the year. This is your lucky day. I know I can resist. Consumer awareness sizzles with the national free street television campaign targeted to men. With key bars you think? Television the <laughs> in just one week, the most controversial movie of the year Ooh, comes to video. Different trailer guy. Find out what everybody's talking about. Showgirls. Followed by a massive post-street television campaign directed at heavy renting adults. Two weeks after street work <laughs> to maximize heavy rental demand. renting adults. Showgirls. Oh, yeah. <laughs> having grossed over 20 million at the box office, is hot on the road to video success. Generating viewer awareness and demand that will translate into big dollars. As your customers look to you to satisfy their curiosity about this film. There's also a special edited for home video version, suitable for a wider audience. Showgirls. In case you want to bring Showgirls to the family. Roll the dice. You can't lose. This is no gamble. Make your year this month. With MGM UA and Showgirls. I think blockbuster was the main reason that they they would release uh edited versions of films like that that was uh 
And Verhoeven, I think, actually cut that version. And I think they only cut out like nine minutes for that one. But yeah, fuck Blockbuster. All this nostalgia <laughs> for Blockbuster. Uh, hey, there's there's that documentary, The Last Blockbuster, I think. I haven't, I haven't watched it yet, but I heard it's pretty good. So if you really want to get into your you know blockbuster feels you can even watch a movie about blockbuster these days um but we're not here to talk about blockbuster our hatred or our love of it but that was this was the when i looked up showgirls trailer this is what popped up and then there were some other ones but i mean in hindsight i'm kind of glad that we got that weird ass three minute long promo reel for how they're going to market this on straight to uh straight to video sales. And I mean, they don't, they don't hide their intention there at all. They're like, look, you need to go after the men here. We're going to be advertising during the Super Bowl, NFL season, whatever we can get our hands on the guys watch. We're going to tell them the showgirls is available for home video. And if you set up a little kiosk or a little, uh, one of those cardboard cutouts, at the video rental store, make sure you push it on your heavy renting video patrons. They're the addicts. <laughs> That's such an odd term. Heavy renting. Yeah, heavy renting. Uh, this they this movie actually made a hundred million dollars in rentals, um, which is a lot of money for back then. It's a lot of money now, but it's a that's a lot of money in you know the late nineties. Yeah, for sure. That's why sort of I had brought up like the idea that this movie was unsuccessful is not true. And whether or not, you know, it it was a box office flop because of its rating, because of its content, uh, because most people thought it was bad and it got annihilated by critics, whatever it was like this still this movie still went on to be uh, undeniably successful. And so the idea that it's coming back around now with a second wave of, uh, I mean, whether it's nostalgia or interest or curiosity for whatever reasons, Showgirls is back. And that Vinegar Syndrome DVD, uh, I don't know if it's sold out or not, but, you know, it's remastered in 4K and it's got the Blu-ray promo. So uh, it's going to be interesting. I did not order it. Uh, but I do have the DVD, if I'm not mistaken, although I did watch this on, I think, Tubi last night, which was probably a mistake because it is like two hours and 15 minutes and then adding in commercials. It is long. I will say that. And Ben, you watched it twice. But was this like you watched it and then came back and watched it again? Or did you just loop it as soon as you ended it? You're like, no, we're starting it over. We're going to go four hours and 20 something minutes all in on Showgirls. So I watched it on MGM Plus, so I didn't have commercials. So I think without the credits, it was like two hours and three minutes, I think. Um, I watched it. I was taking notes throughout, and then I did a little research. And then I was like, you know what? I'm just going to put it back on, and I watched it again. So it was, uh, I mean, it was a fun four hours. I didn't, uh, I laughed more the second time because I was kind of just watching it and not really paying his paying his close attention but mm. it was uh yeah it was a, it was a lot of boobs <laughs> yeah i mean that's that's the one clue that you gave away before uh we dove into this recording is that the movie we're covering has a lot of boobs and look that's true 
and shout out to NGM Plus for having this without commercials. I looked at the streaming services I had and where it was listed as being shown, and it's supposedly on Paramount Plus, but I went to Paramount Plus and it's not on there. So I ended up going to Tubi uh, and watched it with ads, which, you know, as I said, was a mistake. But um, Nix, did you like pop in the DVD for this or did you find it somewhere? Uh, no, I I hit the seven C's and uh, mm, gotcha. watched, watched it that way. I'm really broke right now. <laughs> and and when I looked it up, it didn't tell me it was playing on Tubi or I may, it may have done that. Um, yeah, I but, mean, it's listed on Hoopla, MGM Plus, Paramount, Fubo. I guess I got to try Fubo, but. Mine didn't even say hoopla on there. Um, yeah, I was. I mean, it was only a buck, but I mean, I'm I'm, I'm really really broke right now. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I could I could hit pause. I didn't have to didn't have to worry about ads. And um, thankfully, because uh, I did have to split it into into two spots. Um, but yeah, I wanted to kind of just circle back to. I mean, if your mo- if your movie doesn't make money in the theaters. That is considered a flop, no matter what. No matter if it makes its money back in in rentals or sales um, on home video, that's 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 still considered a failure. Yeah, unfortunately, um, and I think it was maybe even considered a bigger failure because of the names attached to it. I mean, especially for Hoven, but like you said, he doesn't sort of wear the stain of this movie as much uh, as Elizabeth Berkeley did. I think he went, made Starship Troopers like right after this. And I've read that he didn't even want to make this movie to begin with, but he felt obligated to do so because he was in negotiations to do uh, some other film with Schwarzenegger. And then that fell through because the, production budget wasn't there and uh the producer at the time which was i think mario casar he had some money invested already in joe esterhouse's script and he just verhoven that is he felt an obligation to finish or at least to like give him something uh casar that is so interesting to see that you know verhoven's own looking his his own like prism to look back on this movie sort of lands it in a place where he doesn't really stand by it. It's like this movie was awesome. You guys are wrong kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, going back to just Elizabeth taking kind of the brunt of everything. I mean, Esther house at the time when he got paid for this, he was the highest paid screenwriter in Hollywood Um, coming off basic instinct. I think he got paid like $3 million for the script. And uh, I think that was tops until Shane Black got paid $4 million for Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Um, but, I mean, the fact that she only got paid $100,000 for this movie with all of the... I mean, I can't imagine being naked in front of complete strangers, period. Let alone, like you said, anywhere from 12 to 16 hours a day for however long they shot. I mean, she basically was making almost like minimum wage, you know? I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of sad. I mean, she should have gotten paid a lot more for this. Does, do we know if she got any kind of, you know, 
back end from well not that it made any money but would she have if it had if it had made any money i i didn't see anything about that i don't think so verhoven um took a big pay cut to get back end and he didn't uh you know make up for that i think he got paid seven million for this which at the time was fairly low for you know a you know, fairly big name director. Um, so I, th- I think it was it was two million, which at that point was probably ha- uh, from what I remember reading. It was two million that he got, and he claims it was half of what he normally got. So he couldn't afford to pay her anymore. <laughs> oh, it was only two million. Okay, yeah. I, I kind of want to know where the budget went on this movie. I mean, if the budget was thirty five million. Who who else are they paying? I mean, Gina well, Gershon, she's not that big of a star at that point. I mean, I imagine a lot of it went to um, the well, they, it looks like they filmed a lot actually in Vegas, which would take a lot of money to, you know, have, um, you know, have control and, and shut things down or whatever you need to do. Um, and uh, obviously, all of the production design in their in their cheesy dance numbers, a lot of money had to go into that stuff. I swear, every time they have one of the big one, one of the big ones like Goddess, every time it came on the screen, I'm like, this is the cheesiest shit I've ever seen. It it reminded me sort of like I don't know if you guys have seen Dario Argento's opera, but they're doing a version of Macbeth. And the guy was like a music video director. It is just like the most ridiculous thing you've ever seen on a stage. Every time that uh, one of one of these dance numbers came on, uh, it, it was absolutely ridiculous. But they obviously spent a lot of money on on that stuff as well. And they did have some other pretty big names in there besides Gina and Robert Davi and. Um, Ah, uh, the guy from Twin Peaks. I love him, and I can't remember his name right now. Somebody help me. Uh, Kyle, Kyle McLaughlin. McLaughlin. Kyle McLaughlin. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they weren't nobodies. They they had some pretty big, you know, pretty big movies behind them as well. So I think it was just kind of spread out over all of it. But how much did they get paid? I'm sure they didn't get paid a hundred thousand dollars. Probably not. And you know. It's kind of weird that like you see she was the one who took that paycheck. She had to put the most into it. Like, yes, they filmed in Vegas a lot. Yes, those big scenes uh, require uh, a lot of backup dancers, a lot of choreography to go into that. They didn't skimp on the pyro or the costumes in those scenes either. But in a weird way, it's like her experience with this movie is almost like a mirror image of what happens to her character throughout the course of the film as well getting used chewed up and uh then kind of spit up when if they don't have use for you unless you know you give them what they need yeah absolutely and you know i tried to watch it this time with uh what uh scott had said shout out to scott cole former guest on the show and a friend from film club he said treat it like nomi is an alien and so i kind of watched it with that in the back of my mind and 
I did have sort of like a lighter, I guess, experience with it. And like we're introduced to her like she just she's hitchhiking. She gets in a car with a dude that looks like an Elvis impersonator is like, oh, I guess he's not. He just happens to look that way. Then, you know, she shows up in Vegas. She wins the jackpot, then loses all her money, like within five minutes, uh, gets robbed and then sort of like gets into a conversation and then barfs. And I, didn't, I was like, why is she puking all of a sudden? So like right off the bat, she has a very bad Vegas experience. And it's like the whole thing is just very frenetic. Uh, her her body language, her behavior, it's all like sort of very frantic throughout the whole thing as well. Uh, so her character introduction uh, is pretty harsh. Ben, do you do you think the like I got the feeling that maybe she was uh, coming off of like a heroin addiction or something at that point due to her backstory, which we learn later. Did Ben or Nick, did you guys get that kind of impression? That's where the puking came from. I'll let Ben answer that one. Ben, are you alive, buddy? Or I will say that. Maybe <laughs> I assume that, OK, maybe like, you know, she's gambling. She's at the slots and stuff. Maybe she's like, you know, throwing some drinks back. I mean, it is also just this experience for her of like, oh, my God, so much shit has gone bad so quickly. And I've only been here for 10 minutes and just like, you know, bleh. Ben Compl- completely overwhelmed. <laughs> I thought I had unmuted my mic. So I was talking that entire time. I'm so <laughs> glad you guys said something. So I think I just took it as nerves. I think she yeah. realized, you know, she got robbed within the first, you know, what, 20 minutes that she was there, 30 minutes that she was there. Um, and, you know, I think she just, I-, I laughed pretty hard when she won all that money and she was super excited and then she loses it all. And she looks like this, like, you know, seasoned gambler who's just like down on her luck after like five minutes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I-, I think she just kind of I think it all hit her that she was like, oh, this is maybe more than I thought I was getting into. So I, I just took it as nerves. But that makes sense. Um... I also I also got a I, I got a huge kick out of. So she gets she's she's like hitting Molly's car and, you know, she comes up to her and she's like, you know, that's my car. That's my car. And then um, she barfs <laughs> and then they have this like lawning look at each other and they're like mouths are close to each other like they're going to kiss. <laughs> and I'm thinking like that person just puked. I wouldn't want to be anywhere near her mouth. Like what is going on? And so like right away, you're like, OK, this is not going to be a, a straightforward uh, a movie. You know what I mean? It just starts off weird right from the beginning. So, Well, I'd, I'd rather kiss her then than after when she licks the damn stripper pole. Yeah, I, I, I'm not a germ guy. Like, I'm fairly OCD. And while it was kind of hot, I also was like, this is really, really gross. <laughs> I mean, they do become sort of like besties after that. And Molly, uh, you know, for what it's worth, Molly is the probably like the only nice person in the movie, like the only real like sort of textured human character in the movie that seems to not be sort of like a caricature broad stroke in some way, like basically everybody else. Um, so you need her 
to sort of anchor the the insanity of Nomi because you need at least one person to be like, okay, this is maybe it's crazy and it's like this alternate reality, but you need one person that's going to sort of tether you to reality. And Molly does that and they hang out and, you know, they, they eat. But even then, like the direction that Verhoeven decided to go, like, I can't imagine like filming the scene and being like, okay, you guys are going to eat and you're going to have a conversation. And then circling back to it, be like, you know what? I want you to like attack your French fries, you know, throw them all over the place, like eat them like a duck, spray ketchup all over the place. It's all just insanity. And it starts fairly early, man. It's like 10 minutes in. That, that, yeah, that scene uh, kind of was hilarious to me. It's like, yeah, she had, she has no money. How is she going to eat? Somebody gets her food and she throws it all over the place because she's having a hissy fit. Uh, which I don't blame her. I'd be upset too. But you know what? I'd also be like, you know, this may be the only meal I get. Yeah, she's like she she presents as sort of like very immature and bratty. It's like she had a bad day. You finally found someone that's like actually going to sit down and talk to you. They're going to provide you with something to eat. And like, not only are you disrespecting the fact that this person like provided this to you, but like, yeah, you're throwing away your food at this point. And then. Molly just happens to be so nice that she's like, hey, come and stay with me. And then, you know, we fast forward and they've been best friends now living in their trailer together for however long. Yeah, that that dynamic was weird because I did you get did either of you guys get the vibe that Molly was kind of into her? Like there's a lot of times where they look at each other and there's like this you know sexual like chemistry or tension between the two of them but it never goes anywhere but like was that just me or did you guys see that as well well i i think verhoven or esterhaus um put that in there right at the beginning because when molly invites her to stay with her and whatnot nobody looks at her and goes are you hitting on me um so i think it was kind of baked in from the beginning but I don't think it was ever ever meant to build anything more than that. It was more of a platonic best friend. I I, I love you, but it's never going to go anything more than that. Yeah, I mean, we see later on that like Nomi, you know, she's she swings both ways, uh, and her and Crystal have their sort of contentious uh, like hate love relationship, uh, but. Yeah, with Molly, I, I don't know. I didn't read it that way. But in this universe that things are taking place in, it wouldn't be completely outside of out of the question for that to happen between the two of them. Yeah. Um, one of the cool things that I read about before I watched it the second time was that um, Elizabeth and Gina had actually a lot of tension on set. They didn't like each other, apparently. And so the scenes in the movie that, you know, where they are supposed to have tension, like there's actual tension. So like there's this, this like weird, you know, like thing between them, like sexually, like clearly Crystal, you know, finds her attractive maybe she's slightly jealous because you know she's younger and the new girl and zach is that the boss 
Mm-hmm. Zach, you know, Zach clearly is into her and, you know, the whole lap dance scene and all that stuff. So like, there's like real tension in the real world between the two actresses. And then it just kind of amplifies that. And so, you know, the, you don't think about it when you're watching it, you're like, Oh wow. They're like, they're acting pretty well. They act like they really don't like each other. And then I read that and I was like, Oh, they actually didn't like each other. So it, it kind of heightens those, you know, those tense scenes between the two of them. Cause like they actually didn't, you know, like working together. Yeah. What I heard was that Verhoeven was like stoking the fire on that, you know, behind the scenes off camera. He wanted them to hate each other because he thought it would make for better experience on film. And I mean, I guess he's right because they are sort of at the center of the chemistry in the film. I mean, even though Elizabeth Berkeley's character is sort of flanked by uh, James on one side, Zach on another side. Uh, I mean, her stripper boss, like not exactly, but, you know, she's surrounded by a, a lot of shitty men. And so you get you give her sort of like this mirror in crystal where they both sort of see the same thing in each other. And all it does is like amplify the other one. And it's really like their chemistry as performers that gives the movie some like some energy. Because if it's just Nomi going through the typical, you start in the streets, you work your way up to stardom, and then like you fall from grace. Like, you know, we've seen that a hundred times before. We'll see it a hundred times again. So if it wasn't for Gina Gershon, I don't know that this movie kind of recovers from some of the things that maybe handicap it. Yeah, absolutely. I I mean... I think she's the best actress or actor, I guess I should say, in the film. And even then, some of some of her some of her scenes and some of her performance comes off a little a little cringy and over the top. But again, I think that's just Verhoeven telling them what to do. Um, yeah, I really I really like that. Like her whole goal seems to be, you know what? I'm going to prove to you what you really are, and you're really just like me. And I'm going to pull that out of you. And holy hell, does that end up biting her in the ass? Um, uh, and and again, uh, I'm I'll bring it up again. I think the only somewhat erotic sort of scene after all the sex and the and the nudity and the dancing and all that, I think the only really erotic scene is when Elizabeth uh, kisses Gina in the hospital before she she actually goes and and leaves it it really actually had some emotional depth to it i guess i would say which sounds silly because it's showgirls (laughs) but it's the only one that felt like it actually meant anything at that point the pool sex didn't mean anything to you (laughs) because the pool sex makes me laugh my freaking ass off (laughs) it's (laughs) like we're saying it's a wave pool (laughs) at the water park (laughs) <laughs> she she literally looked like she was convulsing like she was like uh having an exorcism and i was like the best part about it is because i obviously watched it back to back so I, I i was i had to watch the scene twice is that kyle throughout the entire scene is like trying to like take it seriously so he's just like deadpan and like trying to act like he's enjoying it and elizabeth is literally just flopping around like you know a fish on a boat and it's like 
I don't know how they got through that scene without laughing. Like they, I, I would be shocked if that was a one take kind of thing. Well, yeah, and it's it's a basic recreation of the lap dance that she had done previously at the Cheetah. Um, it's it's almost the exact same thing that she had done before, except this time he was inside of her. Uh, yeah, that 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 scene is hilarious. It reminds me of I don't know if you guys have ever seen Blood Rain, the Uva Bowl film, but there's a, <laughs> I have not. There's a, there's there's a prison sex. There's sex where Blood Rain's uh, having sex with a guy through the prison bars, and it kind of reminded me of that, too. Just completely ridiculous over the top. Well, as I was sitting down having dinner last night with my girlfriend, we sort of, like, were talking about this scene, and I was trying to, like, approach it in a way that sort of, like, made sense. But in talking to her about it, I, like, she's grossed out and she's like it's so stupid and i'm like okay like i totally understand where you're coming from but i'm trying to strip it down to like verhoven in this moment like what is his goal is his goal to tell us in the audience that this is attractive and a turn on because later in the film you get zach telling her that she's great in bed and i think that's the only time they slept together but i mean they at least on camera maybe once or twice but uh, are we supposed to be looking at that being like, wow, this is amazing? Or is it really like deeper than that? And we're supposed to understand that like this is this character's interpretation of what she thinks is sexy in that moment, right? Because we've already established that Nomi is like not a rational person at all. She's prone to like, you know, fits of like instantaneous rage jealousy uh she's very flippant and so i started to look at it more like this is what her character thinks is attractive in this moment yeah i can see that i i think verhoven throughout this entire film is kind of just showing that that whole uh industry you know uh vegas and showgirls and all that stuff is just it's it's not that sexy like it's like nicks was saying like there's no emotional connection it's literally just naked bodies on a stage and they're gyrating and dancing and that's not sexy you know like i i, I so i think he's just exaggerating that to get like to like prove that point that like you know this is not anything to like look up to or be not that he's like shaming it, but you know what I mean? Like he's, I think he's just trying to like kind of prove the point that like, none of this is really sexy. This is not a glamorous uh, job. And you know, these women are, you know, harassed by their bosses and the cheetah boss. I can't think of the, character's name what's the, what was the uh, character al name? al yeah you know he introduces a new girl to the to the group and he is you know telling her that he's like you know if you want to last more than a week you know, you'll have to give me a blowjob and it's like you know this guy is just clearly a scumbag and mm -hmm. so i think he's kind of i i think he him and esther house i think they really were trying to show 
the like seedy underbelly of of this you know industry in vegas especially back then um actually side note i have never been to a strip club uh so i don't know if this stuff is real or not but <laughs> it was uh it definitely felt exaggerated either way so what okay um <laughs> well there are some strip clubs where, yeah, you, you can definitely get lap dances and, and stuff like that. And in the really seedy ones, like even here, like in in the Midwest, yeah, you can probably get a uh, or in California. Even I used to work at a strip club. Yeah, you, you can get a behind the scenes like hand job or something like that. Uh, so, yeah, so this that stuff can can happen. Um, I would I would like to say. Um, first of all, you mentioned the blowjob uh, uh, reference. I think it was interesting that when Nomi was quitting, uh, he said, I'm not going to hire you back. If I do, you're going to have to give me a blowjob or something like that. It made it sound mm-hmm. like she didn't she didn't give him one, but she was still able to be successful and work there. And um, to kind of come back to our pool scene, because, I mean, it's one of the most notorious scenes, like, (laughs) ever. Everybody talks about the pool scene. I think that's all she knows. Like, they talk a lot about, like, when she's dancing, like, uh, she she comes from the hips. Um, That's not something they teach in dance school, stuff like that. And that's, that's, I think that's all she knows, because knowing her backstory, and I guess, spoilers if anybody hasn't watched showgirls <laughs> you know she was a prostitute um and she was escaping all of that and coming to vegas to you know make her way so all she knows is that lap dance all she knows is is grinding and getting a guy off and so when it comes to that pool scene that's all she knows how to do i don't think she knows what real making love is all she knows is fucking and by the way, pool sex is the worst sex to ever have. <laughs> Just you never tried. I have not, but I've also heard the same thing. It's uh, water is not a natural lubricant, so there's it's, not. It's, especially with chlorine. It. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, I love how you just brushed over the fact that you worked at a strip club. Uh, is there like a backstory to this, or like uh, were you uh, like the? Uh, <laughs> The floor cleaner. <laughs> oh, did gross. You, did you DJ? I was a DJ. Did Paul Rubens come in and... Uh... Hey, Paul <laughs> Rubens got busted in a, in a, in a porn theater, <laughs> not not a strip club. No, I was, I was, uh, I was living in LA and yeah, I was, uh, I was a DJ and it was the most, one of the most horrible experiences I've ever had. Um, you know, everybody thinks it would be so cool to work at a strip club and oh my God, no, all that backstabbing shit between the dancers. Yeah, that's, that's, that's all there. And they're trying to sneak (laughs) off and, uh, and, uh, you know, get paid extra for their under, under the table hand jobs and whatnot. And you're supposed to keep an eye out for that. And, um, yeah, it was, it was absolutely terrible. I, I didn't, I didn't stay there very long at all. Wait, I so did. you doubled as a DJ and a security guard? <laughs> right? Yeah, I, dude. I just spin the wax. I'm not trying to keep tabs on her, you know, backdoor hand jobs. 
<laughs> I don't know why they tried to make it my job. I guess it's because I could see over, you know, most of the, I, you know, I was raised up and I could see what was going on in the dark under the black lights. Uh, yeah, I guess, I guess that's why they tried to make me do that. And then the ladies, you know, they're like, you know, I'll cut you in on what I get from this. So, uh, yeah, it oh, was, so uh, they, they would tell you to look the other way and they would like give you money. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I'd be all over that. I'd be like, all right. <laughs> uh, I was not very comfortable with that. I, I didn't stay there over a month. Um, so yeah, kids um, working at strip club, not not everything you think is cut out to. Be. Not so glamorous, um, but yeah, we're like we we meet the manager. He changes uh, the woman's name to Hope because he says that nobody wants to fuck a penny. And then he gets into this you know sort of diatribe about like where it's okay for the customers to come on her, and it's just he's so damn gross. That whole conversation is gross. And as I'm watching it, it's still fairly early in the movie and I can't like pull myself away from this movie walks a very, very fine line between misogyny uh, as spectacle and actually like as a piece of satire. And I don't usually like bring quotes into this show, but I, you know, I read an interesting article that I'm going to put the link up for in the show notes. If anybody wants to sort of read about the reassessment of showgirls at nearly 30 years old, but uh, Adam Naiman is a Canadian film critic. And what he said was Verhoeven was widely understood in America as a satirist and as a social commentator, as long as the primary texture of his films was violence Whereas he makes a movie that has a texture that is more overtly sexual and all of a sudden people didn't think he was a satirist or a commentator. They just said sort of what a pervert. And the other quote that I pulled from him was, um, or at least from the article, it said, Naaman's now much cited classification of the film uh, used as a framing device in You Don't Know Me, the documentary, uh, as a masterpiece of shit in reference to showgirls a film that is both terrible and brilliant at once and proves that need not be a contradiction oh ben that that brings up what we we've been calling it i call it a trashter piece <laughs> yeah yeah this is the ultimate trashter piece um i actually had a thought and you guys might think this is crazy uh but i'm curious to see what you think I'm I kind of lean towards this is actually a feminist film. And I know that sounds crazy when you see all of the <laughs> all of the, you know, misogyny and kind of tr poor treatment of women. And but I, I think Nomi is, you know, she's a very strong person and she never really gives in even the stuff with, um, you know, with Zach. And sleeping with him. I don't think that she she knew what she was doing. She wanted to get to the top. And she knew that that was the way that she could do it. And and but I I mean, you really even just from the very beginning, she gets into the pickup truck. The guy starts to get a little bit creepy with her and she instantly just pulls out a switchblade. And, you know, she's not going to take anybody's shit. And she doesn't really ever like 
go away from that throughout the movie. She's very in charge of her, you know, her own life. Not that it's her life is great or anything, but like she never really gets stepped on in, in a way, you know, like she spits in the, um, in Zach's face. She, you know, throws ice at the, the, uh, the stage man. We see the stage manager. Uh, he was the director of the play, I believe the director. Yeah. And, you know, every time where, you know, or the scene where, you know, they go to the boat show and she's, you know, she gets paid a thousand dollars and she's like, Oh, this is so easy. I'm just gonna, you know, walk around and sign pictures. And then she realizes that like, this is like, uh, you know, she has to go sleep with this, this whale. And, um, she like causes a scene in front of everybody. And she's just like, you know, basically this isn't what I signed up for. And so like, I think if you like look at her character, she's very strong throughout the entire film. And, and I think, you know, it's like you said, there's all the misogyny and even, even the, um, the cheetah mom, you know, the Mm -hmm. older lady, you know, she's making these terrible jokes that if a man made would be like pretty horrific. And so, you know, I think a lot of that is like you said, it's like, it's satire, but it's also, you know, this is what these people go through. Like, this is real life. But, you know, Nomi, she really does stay. She has her own autonomy throughout the movie, really. I, I mean, unless I'm completely off base, but like, I kind of I kind of think that this uh, might be a, a feminist film. I I think there's only one big flaw in that. And that's after she throws the ice in the uh, director of the production's uh, face, you know, for wanting to get her nipples hard. uh, She runs away. And she's done. It's like she, she, she's, she won't stand for that, I guess. But the only reason she gets everything else is because of Gina Gershon's character who kind of forces her into this, into this, uh, this life and everything that she wanted. If she had really been trying to get that part on her own merits and done that and left, I don't think she would have got into the show. She never would have been, you know, up for anything else to, to, to get her up to the level that she wanted to be. She would have been, she would have just stayed at the cheetah. So without Gina, she she wouldn't have achieved anything that she was really looking for, I don't think. See, but yes, but I also think that Nomi was playing Crystal as like her pawn in this whole game. You know, like I think even one of the like synopsis or one of the like movie quotes or something is like, you know, she'll do whatever it takes to get to the top. And I I think she realized that she could use that attraction that crystal had towards her and and you know the fact that zach was into her as like a weapon like to you know to kind of get in to her like space because you know she's very standoffish in the beginning and she's kind of you know like very demeaning you know she talks down to her and everything 
And I, I think that Nomi very early on realized that she could, you know, kind of, uh, you know, wiggle her way into her space and kind of take advantage of that. I That's an interesting take, but the way that Verhoeven has her act and play out all these scenes is that she really is offended and she really doesn't want to do these things. And um, she would just rather not do that at all. I mean, uh, uh, maybe it was it was her acting, but I don't think so. I think that's exactly what Verhoeven wanted her to look like. Like she was really trying to leave all of that. Uh, I hate to say the word, you know, but the the slutty horse things that she was trying to escape. Um, and she didn't want to be associated with that anymore. So when she was forced to take her top off and try to get her nipples hard, it really did offend her. And um, I don't think her storming off and and bombing the audition was part of her plan. But, you know, it's open for interpretation. I do think that she, you know, she always knew Gina was trying to get in her pants. <laughs> that was... Definitely a thing I think she was aware of and and uh, also Kyle McLachlan's character was very aware of. For, for sure. But think about the scene where Caesar puts on the crown and there's like, it's not like a full like pause, but it's like a kind of like a slow close up of her face. And you can see like, she's like, I did it. Like, this is what I wanted and I got it. And so, like, yes, I I see what you're saying, but I think that she really, really wanted this. If you remember uh, early on when she was watching um, them perform and she's like doing like the hand, you know, in front of her face and all that stuff. And she's like kind of like slowly like touching her like neck and her chest she she wants that like she wants to be in this world she wants to be at the top and i think yes she doesn't like give in and you know she storms off and all this other stuff but i think like i said i think the key evidence is that scene where he puts that crown on her and she she is like the happiest that you've seen her in the movie. Like this is, she, she got it. She, she attained what she wanted. So uh, I don't know that that's my take. Like, I, I, again, I think a lot of this is open to interpretation, but I think that she was cunning from fairly early on. that She was going to take over crystals, crystals job. Well, that that's, that's true. I mean, her goal was to become a, a you know, a major star, um on the strip like that um when she was presented with what she may have to do in order to achieve that uh she ran away from it and then when she got in she got pushed over and over by gina and she was she was like i'm never gonna be like you i'm not like you and then as gina pushed her more and more uh she eventually flipped and she went all right fuck it i'm gonna do whatever it takes i'm gonna get what i want down the stairs you go bitch and yeah she's happy at that point because she's just abandoned everything else that she was holding on to beforehand where she wasn't trying to be that person that she was trying to escape 
I mean, you're right. But also, the only reason she's there is because she gave she abandoned everything and everyone that she that she thought she was, and and became she became a piece of shit like Gina was, only because she she kind of had her hand forced. If you think about it, yeah, yeah, I can see that. What do you think, Nick? I'm not going to join you out on that ledge that this is a feminist film, but I will say that <laughs> she, she is competitive for sure, and. She weaponizes her sexuality to sort of play the uh, the variety of scumbag men that are around her. And she does get what she wants. She did go to Vegas to win, like she said. That's why I said she's competitive. You know, she tells the first person that we see in the film, it's maybe even like the within the first few sentences of the film, that she says, I'm going to win. So she is heading to Vegas to leave her past behind. Uh, she wants to be a star. She gets her opportunity to be that star and she takes it. And it's also interesting that like basically all the men in the movie are varying degrees of shit. And even the guy who's like the least shit is still pretty shit. And then you look at the female characters and we get Molly, who is like the only person that really has her back. The only person that uh, is like a good, like well-intentioned character. And then she we've got Crystal, who's, you know, the villain in this story, realistically. Uh, and they like they get to bury the hatchet at the end, but she is the villain. And then even gay. Uh, who's the choreographer is like the overseer for the stardust. She's not really like on the girl side. She's on the side of the company that exploits these young women. So it's, it's a weird situation for Nomi's character to be in because I, I had to ask myself this question and I wrote it down. Like, am I cheering for her to win in this situation because a lot of the character traits that she exhibits are like, I'm watching her and I'm like, eh, like I'm not really rooting for her. It's like, I'm sort of just like watching what happens and it's okay to have characters in films that aren't good characters and people that I don't like associate with as the hero. And it's sort of only by default that everybody else around her is maybe worse than her, that she is the hero of the story. And I don't even know that she is like she exacts vengeance. She sort of wins in her game of being competitive, but I don't know that I would go as far as to say that she is the hero, even though she's the protagonist. So I guess my question for you is like, are you guys cheering for Nomi? to win uh i'm not cheering i'm not rooting against her yeah um i don't think she's a hero i think that she has you know selfish intentions and um and you know she cheated at any point that, you know even just from the mm -hmm. beginning when you know the interview and they're asking her all the questions she lies throughout the entire thing so you know yes she's trying to get away from her past and for her it's like an adjacent career that she can get that fame and fortune and, you know, use her abilities without the seedy underbelly of, you know, lap dances and, you know, sex on the side and all that other stuff. So I don't think there is a hero in this movie. I, I think 
if there is, it's Molly. And, yeah. you know, unfortunately, it's kind of the the cliche saying of like, you know, good guys finish last because the the most normal and most moral person in the film at the end gets, you know, uh, brutally raped. And so it's kind of like, well, in this industry, if you're around these people, something bad is going to happen to you, no matter how good of a person you are. And I think that's kind of actually read that um, Verhoeven and Esterhaus really regret um, leaving that scene in there. And it does feel kind of out of place. Um, you know, it makes it from like this like fun, you know, bad B movie into like, whoa, wait, where is this coming from? I, I do like her, you know, sweet revenge at the end, which, you know, kind of is like where I compare that to like, you know, Miss 45, um, the Abel Ferreira movie, which I don't know if you guys have seen, but, you know, of she's, course. Yeah. I mean, it's great. It's it's such an amazing movie. But um, I. I think there isn't a hero in this movie, uh, so I don't know that I'm rooting for her but i'm not rooting against her i i kind of appreciate her competitiveness you know so i'm like yeah you know she deserves she she did what she did to get to where she was and you know she deserves it so yeah there's some commendable qualities mixed in there with a lot of like crazy shit as well so it's like it it doesn't have to be one or the other i'm just curious like in in watching it, like as the audience, like how are we supposed to feel? Are we supposed to be like rooting for her to get to the top of this horrible business and to do anything necessary to get there? Like, I don't think so. Nix, what do you think? Yeah, I don't I don't think so either. I think you can start out that way at the beginning. Um, but once once you hit about the halfway mark, she she starts to switch and starts to flip, and and um, she starts to do maybe not even the halfway mark. I forget it's like a two hour movie, um, but uh, she she starts to do things that are a little bit questionable just just to get to the top. And again, I think it's probably because she was pushed by the Gina Gershon character. But um, no, I I don't want her to succeed. I. I'd 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 rather her have gone anywhere else than Las Vegas to try to improve her life. Um, I don't know where you'd go to be a dancer. Um, that does seem like the most obvious choice. But uh, I mean, uh, no, no, there, I, I do not root for her at all. And you know what? Sure, we get a little revenge at the end. But it's only one of three people. The other two people weren't 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 affected um uh, so it yeah it's it's just a it, it's a really dour way to end the film while trying to be a little uplifting and i think that's all on purpose i, I don't think verhoven or esterhaus do anything on accident uh I, I i think that was probably the perfect way to end the film yeah, and she's uh, heading to L.A. for a sequel that never got greenlit because this one bombed at uh, the box office. But, you know, we can't not talk about uh, the the brutal rape scene that you mentioned. And I think 
you know, if I had to really sort of clamp down on something that would make me firmly in the camp of this is not a feminist film, it would be taking the one good female character that you have in the story and then having her get brutally raped, uh, not necessarily at the hands of her friend's friend, but Nomi puts her in to harm's way. And Jeremy McHale, who made the documentary, he he said it's completely offensive. I think it's not really necessary. Verhoeven used Molly's brutalization as a way for Nomi to find herself. And I think that's disgusting. And I agree with that because like even the you know, the revenge that she takes, like, I guess it's supposed to be like a win in that moment, but it's like, it's not even worth it. It's like, okay, she beats this guy up, but like, it doesn't erase what happened to her friend. It doesn't like absolve her of sort of, you know, she, she didn't know that that was going to happen, but she also wasn't looking out for the one person that was looking out for her either. And it's just a really, really like shitty and really graphic scene where I, I read that even certain screenings of this at different film festivals have uh, cut that scene out of their showings of it. So it's just, it's a really hard pill to swallow. Yeah. I think um, I, it, it is after, after laughing my ass off through most of the movie, <laughs> because it is a very funny movie. And then you get to that point, and it's the one likable character has the most horrible thing happen to him. And it, I mean, it's not graphic, graphic, but I mean, there's a little blood involved, and um, you know, uh, whew, yeah, it's pretty intense. I think maybe what they were, uh, maybe it's like another person that said, "No, I'm not going to do this because I have higher standards that than this. I'm not going to follow you." through what you've chosen to do, which is what she said to, to know me, right? Mm. But then she shows up anyway, and the only reason she's there is because she wants to meet this guy. That's the first thing out of her mind, out of her mouth. Uh, where is whatever his name is? Um, it's another person see, doing things that they said they wouldn't do to get what they wanted, and they suffer for it. And um, yeah, I, I I don't think the retribution or the revenge or anything makes up for all of that. It does leave a sour taste in my mouth, but it may tie into the whole theme of the film as well. Yeah, like I said earlier, is I I think that they very intentionally wanted to show the like really shitty underbelly of that whole industry, um, and that rape scene was apparently uh, based on a true, uh, true story um, where, you know, like the company kind of protected him because he was, you know, a big, big, uh, you know, puller for crowds and stuff like that. And um, so, yeah, it, but yeah, it's uh, completely unnecessary. I, I think that if you take that scene out, it would be a you know a, a much different film uh it's it's not a complete you know i mean i still really enjoy the movie i just wish that that scene wasn't in it how how would you end the film then why would she ever leave vegas because the only right. reason she leaves is because she has to go hide again 
Right. I mean, yeah, I, I guess, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how they would have redone it, but I mean, yeah, obviously, like I said, they, I, they said that they regret keeping that scene in. I don't know if they said that after the fact where people, there was obviously backlash because yeah. of it and they're just trying to protect themselves. I, per, I, I personally don't think Verhoeven is the type of director to apologize for something if he didn't actually mean it, because he obviously has made some, you know, controversial movies and, um, you know, I mean, geez, basic instinct is that whole scene was, you know, talked about, still talked about. And, you know, he never apologized for that or, um, so I, I I kind of tend to lean towards the fact that they actually do regret having it in there. Um, but yeah, it's if it's definitely the biggest flaw of the movie because it goes from like a very like hysterical B movie to like this like serious, you know, scene at the end. And it's like, oh, <laughs> you just kind of took it, you know, the fun level down dramatically so man. yeah it turned it off completely at that point uh, well right yeah obviously yeah <laughs> and i mean i guess it like if i'm trying to look at it as objectively as possible right you're saying like what nick said about even the person who is like the one maybe good person in this story still sort of goes against the grain of what they know that their like instincts are telling them and they pay the price for it and it's probably like you said based on a true story so it's not out of the realm of reality that these kinds of things happen it's the way that that scene is shown that i think is the bigger problem because a lot of that stuff can be uh implied so to to go about doing it that way and then to to look back on it and to be like, yes, this was a mistake. I regret, you know, taking this route. It, it says a lot about that scene. Like you said, for a guy like Verhoeven, who's doesn't apologize, who's into like big, crazy shit in general, who's no stranger to uh, violence or nudity to regret doing that, I think, you know, speaks volumes about that scene. Well, I'm, I'm for some reason I'm thinking about Sam Raimi apologizing for the vine rape scene in the original Evil Dead. He's he's always thought that it shouldn't be in there, but in every every sequel, even the ones that he made or remakes, they always kind of reenact that same scene. Um it is so it's it's it, it and I don't know, man. I, where was the film going to go? I, okay, you're right. It it was brutal, but would if we if we if we didn't see how shitty that guy was, if we only saw her walk out beaten up and bruised, would would it would we really be behind Nomi when she kicks the living shit out of that guy? I. I don't know if it would if it would if it would if it was hit as hard. Okay, that's that's a fair point. But when you're asking about like how the movie like would find its conclusion if that doesn't happen, the moment where Zach uh 
Kyle McLaughlin's character sort of like confronts her about her past and all these things that have been chasing her. I was sort of like waiting for, oh, there's somebody that's looking for her. Right. And so that would give her a reason to leave town and give her a reason to be afraid. It even give her a reason to kick somebody's ass. So if it felt like it never just it, it didn't deliver on all of this like baggage, they sort of used it as uh, a crutch to like to make the end happen sooner than it was going to because they need a reason for her to leave Vegas. And then all this stuff sort of spirals right after that. Um but I felt like it didn't like deliver like there's so much about her sort of like planting the seeds of her past and her telling people like, oh, I'm just from different places. And like her refusal to acknowledge anything about her past is telling us that like she's definitely coming from a place of trauma and she's trying to leave that behind. And then when we sort of get the like laundry list of uh, reasons she's been arrested and what she's been arrested for. It's like, okay, so now just this guy who we knew was shitty all along uh, has more leverage over her and she doesn't even lose her job because of it. She wasn't going to be forced out of uh, the show. He was like, no, now I'm just going to use this as leverage to make sure that you just run yourself into the ground doing this show and we're going to squeeze every penny out of you possible. But that seems like it was always going to be the case with the only difference being that like they were teammates versus like she's a slave. Yeah. Oh, I didn't. And that brings up, I always like, I, I like the way that um, Verhoeven set up a lot of stuff in the beginning and then paid off at the end, especially when she went for her first um, audition for the goddess show and the director walked by and goes, Oh, you look like Pollyanna. She's like, what the fuck did you just call me? Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the movie, you find out her actual name is Polly. I convenient. Right. Well, well, I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, I mean, when you first when I first saw it, I was like, yeah, Pollyanna, because she's wearing all you know, she's wearing pants and a shirt and everybody else is wearing, you know, uh, sports bras and whatnot. And she's the only one wearing like fully clothed. It makes sense. It was kind of clever. Um, but uh, yeah, it was kind of funny uh, tie back there at the, at the end. Yeah, I think her name was actually Polly. Anna something. I don't know about the Anna part. I just got the Polly. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was Pollyanna. Oh, Polly Ann. I'm sorry. Polly Ann. Okay. Yeah. Did did anybody uh when they saw um Al for the first time think about Goonies, the Fratelli brothers? I didn't. I didn't either. I will confess, I'm not not the biggest Goonies fan. I know me neither. It's like a hardcore '80s classic. I like it, but I'm not like a diehard Goonies guy. I have probably seen that movie mm, without exaggeration, probably in the hundreds, three, four hundred times at least. We used to watch that. We used to watch that movie at least three to four times a week in my in my house. Uh, He was a Fratelli, right? Yeah, he was one of the bad guys. Okay. Yeah. I'll have to I'll have I, to make sure I peep that out next time I put on Goonies. Also, apparently, uh Robert Davi in real life is uh an anti-vaxxer Trumper. So Oh man, come on. Yeah, I know. I, I found that out recently and I was like, oh, oh that right. sucks. 
Well, Nick doesn't like to talk about this stuff, so we'll stick to the movie. This is bad movies we love, <laughs> not politics. <laughs> I want to I mean, say, oh, you sorry. can edit, you can edit all that out. We don't. No, have to, we don't. I'll have to leave it politics. in there, Ben. You asked for it. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say, I I was thinking about some of the dance scenes again, and like the big production number for Goddess, mm-hmm. which, first of all, I think it's funny that all of the other dancers are doing all of the work. And then Gina Gershon like either shows up from under the stage or is lowered down from the top of the stage. And then she just kind of poses a bit and maybe joins in the dance. And it's funny, but they're, they're doing the big like motorcycle dance towards the end Mm. where there's like flames and motorcycles driving around and everybody's got the black uh, short hair wigs on and uh, they let her down. She's got she's got a mask on. And then as soon as they take the mask off, the whole crowd goes crazy. Like, oh, it's her. It's Crystal. Oh, it's, it's like, how can you tell? She looks like every other female dancer on the stage. What the fuck is the deal? Especially if you're in the crowd. I like, did. It, I asked that same question myself. I was like, what <laughs> is it that makes crystal or any other person that's the star of the show like what makes them the star they're all naked they're all dancing like she's not speaking she's not singing from what we see she doesn't have any like particular dancing skills that nobody else has so aside from like the people in charge of the show saying that she's got the heat i don't know what it is that makes the lead of the show stand out more than anybody else yeah, that was kind of bizarre. There, there really was no differenti- differentiation between the the dancers to me. So I don't know. I guess somebody has to be the star. Yeah, I mean, the first time I went to Vegas, I think I stayed at the Stardust, and it wasn't because of this show or because of this movie. But I was like disappointed that when I went to the Stardust, it was like, hey, this I don't even know if this is real. Like I've never been to a show like that in Vegas, so I don't even know like what era that's supposed to be representing because the Vegas that I've gone to, like I've never even seen one of those advertised. So it's very strange. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure they have those kind of shows in Vegas. I, I don't, you, you had mentioned earlier about, you know, all the costumes and stuff being kind of over the top, but I'm pretty sure the showgirls, that is how they actually are in real life. Like they, you know, exaggerate kind of everything. So I would expect no less. Yeah, they uh, Verhoeven interviewed 200 exotic dancers for research before, you know, making this movie. Um, So I I think, you know, he doesn't seem like Mm -hmm. the type that would just kind of throw shit out there for no reason. I think he's fairly, you know, he does his research and excuse me, I need to convince the studio to give me millions of dollars to interview 200 exotic dancers for my next movie. Show me what you do. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, maybe that's where the budget went. But, you know, since we're talking about it and we'll lighten the mood a little bit, we'll do some trivia. Time for trivia. I know you guys have done your research here and we talked about one of these questions a little bit, but Question number one, as of last year, as we saw in the straight to VHS, uh, or not the straight to VHS, but the VHS promo reel, Showgirls is the highest grossing NC-17 movie of all time, uh, making about $20 million at the box office and made another $100 million in home video money. 
It was also the most expensive NC-17 film. How much was the budget? $35 million. Ooh. Um, No. Uh, I believe it was about $48 million. The number that I'm looking at says 45 so I'll give it to Nick's. Because he's, he's a little bit closer. Woohoo! <laughs> I, who knows? I mean, this is estimated, but uh, estimated at 45. Okay. Uh, question number two. The poster for the movie is an homage to a photograph by which Czechoslovakian photographer? Slobodomadage. <laughs> what was that? Slobodomadage. <laughs> I, think he's, I think he's being funny. I'm doing uh, a Totopolis. <laughs> Totopolis. Uh, I think... I don't know the name, but I do. I did recognize the actual picture uh, that he was referencing. So I don't I don't know. I didn't know it off the top of my head, but it is Tono Stano. And the picture is called Sense. And uh, if you look that picture up, it is pretty spot on uh, replica with the poster art. Question number three, third and final question. In 1996, Showgirls set the all-time record for Razzie nominations. How many nominations did it receive? I'm, I think it was seven. That's what I was going to say. It was nominated for 13, and it won seven, including Worst Actress, Worst Director, Worst New Star, Worst Original Song, Worst Picture, Worst Screen Couple, and Worst Screenplay. And it also got nominated for Worst Actor, Worst Supporting Actor for both uh, Robert Davi and uh, uh, Alan, Alan Rackins. And uh, also nominated for Worst Supporting Actress and Worst Remake or Sequel. So it cleaned up at the Razzies. I think it, uh, it held the record for some time as the, the biggest winner having swept the Razzies. Uh, that year but it has since been replaced by something else Razzies. yeah that concludes our trivia segment and i think yeah i don't think it's fair to uh you know elizabeth berkeley to again like she's not the worst she's not the reason this movie failed so i think worst actress is, is a tough label to put on her i do like though that verhoven showed up at the Razzies to accept worst director and worst picture. So, I mean, he, he's a soldier. He's a trooper for going in there and knowing exactly what he's getting into and still like taking it with a grain of salt and having a good sense of humor about it. So props to Verhoeven. I just, um, yeah, that's what we were talking about. Uh, I think Godzilla versus smog monster. I was like, I mentioned the golden turkeys and I couldn't remember the other one. It's mm. yeah, it's, it's the Razzies and man, are they just the most dour group of people ever? They, I mean, they even pick on like child actors and stuff. I, <laughs> but um, yeah. Okay. Anyway, I had something else, but I forgot. So they made a direct to video sequel and it was actually, um, the actress who played Penny. Yeah, who was Penny? I, I was I was thinking she, about that. She was the one who, you know, Al gives the big speech to that he introduces her to the group. Oh. And he's, you know, and he's like, you know, uh, what was this? What, what was his? 
people the the customers want class dumb dumb they don't want to fuck a penny yeah and then you know when he leaves she looks at nomi and she she was like is he serious so anyways she uh wrote directed and starred in the direct-to-video sequel which apparently i heard was a parody but i did not watch it so you're making a parody of a satire okay sounds (laughs) sounds <laughs> sounds very interesting and probably not great but i'm glad that she got in at every level of production on that um i want to also ask you two- oh yeah go for it ben uh the the sequel that was planned um the name was bimbo's nomi does la shut the fuck up <laughs> which is kind of a great take on you know debbie does dallas i i, I i'm kind of sad that we didn't get that sequel Honestly, I am too, man. I, mean, I, I would have loved it after the recent resurgence. Maybe we get, you know, Showgirls 2, Los Angeles edition, or I guess maybe it's Showgirls 3 at this point. But uh, speaking of Penny, she is the one who ends up uh, with James. And James is an interesting character in that he kind of like sees through Nomi almost right away. And he kind of like pushes her in a direction where it's almost like some other movies that have been made about dance where it's like, you know, you're trying to you're working on like making something for yourself. And like, it's almost like legitimate dance is an option for her. And then like he still turns out to be like a pretty shitty person himself as well. And it's just like, OK, I I didn't always view him as being like a shitty character but then it's just like he's less shitty than some of the more shitty guys but he's still pretty bad he's bad but he's probably the least shitty yeah of the of the bad guys and i i couldn't like remember his name the character's name like in the movie like late in the movie to him like james his name is james james And I just like I couldn't get it to stick for some reason. I don't know why, especially having seen it twice fairly recently. I just don't know if it's like he wears a name badge. You don't really hear his name get spoken very often. And it just feels like his character like maybe seemed like it was going to be a bigger part of the story. And then just kind of like fizzles out at the end. He's like, oh, well, she's pregnant. We're getting married. Okay, my segment of the story is done. You guys remember character names except Nomi? You guys are amazing. (laughs) Crystal, Al, you know, some some of the decent ones. The boob lady who the, the boob lady, the the uh, the comedian chick. Yeah. Okay. We... I I have a question about her. Uh huh. Were those really her boobs in that movie? I think so. I think they so. Did not, they did not look real when she was doing the 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 gag with the dress. They looked like they were like plastic or like fake and they would like pop out i i that's that was my take that they were like not real but i maybe they were oh well, let's let's maybe, rewatch yeah watch it a third time and then uh, ah I, <laughs> I tried watching on the second time and i still couldn't figure it out so they might have some bounce to them man i mean i i'm i don't care that much but so what was with the 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 red nipples oh the, god almighty bench? The revenge scene. That was so disturbing. I don't know what it was. And other than thinking back to 
pennies from heaven, which you'd brought up in our little like uh, preamble discussion and which we covered in film club. I, you don't see her actually paint them, but they're distinctly red and she is putting on lipstick right before that scene happens. So it's like the only logical conclusion I can come to is that she painted her nipples red. And I don't know if that's like a, a war paint thing, like because she couldn't paint her face or it'd be too obvious. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it was, uh, maybe she thought he would like it because, you know, he was clearly a violent guy with the blood and all that stuff. Maybe it was like some type of, I don't know, taking that back or some, who knows. She did, you know, she did preface it with it's showtime. Now I I wanted to say it's showtime folks. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I didn't get that either. I noticed that I was like, why the fuck are her nipples so red? They didn't look like that before. There's yeah, no right. ex. Doesn't he? Doesn't he like kiss or suck on them? And he does. I, I, yeah, and it doesn't come off on his lips. Yeah, I don't know. It was very, very disturbing to me. Really bizarre. It's a distraction yeah. so she can, you know, set up her spinning back kicks, which she throws several of, and uh, you know they land with authority, and then she gets some stomping in, so. I mean, she gets to take out a lot of her frustration uh, from the course of the whole film. And I mean, also, she's she paints her nails throughout the movie. And that's kind of like a big thing that she's doing. So maybe it has something to do with that. But uh, just a cursory search of why did Nomi paint her nipples red brings up some articles. But I don't have time to read them all right now and get you an answer. Oh, they don't put them in the headlines for clickbait? don't. I wish. Oh, man. Well, if she if she was painting her her nipples to uh, uh, tie into her painting her nails, she didn't get very creative. She didn't. Not at, not in that scene. I guess she was rushed for time. She you know, she had revenge on her mind. She couldn't get too uh, out there with the designs. Maybe it was like um, how bullfighters have like a red uh, cape. Maybe Oof. it was like so his he would be distracted. Yeah. So when she tried the to get only the only thing I know, can think of. When she tried to get the knife, he wouldn't be looking at something else. He'd just be focused on that. Yeah. The Did hypnot- you guys hypnotize him with those red nipples? Was anybody else like distracted? Like when whenever they like showed her dancing, like even like at the cheetah, like when she first shows up on the stage, like they uh they put in some like post-production, like, oh yeah. <laughs> oh, like I was wearing headphones, so maybe it was more distracting for me. But I mean, it was like there's this post production, like little grunts and uhs that 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 she did while dancing, and it's like you you don't do that while what especially if you're like auditioning. They did that even in the audition. It was. Uh, did anybody else notice that? I thought it was part of like the music that was playing while she was dancing. Oh no, that was that was her like excited. No, I- to be dancing yeah. yeah i think that i think she was making those noises there was a couple funny uh dance parts that i took note of when she's in the club when she first meets james in the very beginning when she's dancing alone she looks like she's in a mosh pit like her dancing is so chaotic and violent like she's whipping her arms around and like her whole body's just like literally looks like she's in a in a mosh pit and i was like this is strange this is so bizarre 
it was the beginning of her dance routine too. Like she didn't even build up to it. That's just how it started. Yeah, she yeah. came out of that curtain very aggressively. And then uh, during the lap dance, she's like, I'll change the music. And the music for that scene was like the craziest acid jazz, like almost felt like it was like something out of like a David Lynch movie where it was just like screeching violins. And like, I don't know if any, but either of you guys noticed that, but it was so like off-putting. And again, I think, I think that was intentional. I think, I, I really truly believe that Verhoeven was not trying to make this movie sexy because even though it's filled with nudity, like Nick said, there's really not any actual sexy stuff in the movie. It's kind of off-putting in most most of the time. Yeah, that's a good point. And I had to like sort of ask myself that question while I was watching it. Like, is this designed to be appealing i mean obviously it's a movie as we saw in the uh the promo reel for the the video release was hey you're gonna market this to men like yeah no shit sherlock of course this is marketed to men but i was like trying to like grapple with is this supposed to be presented to where like the audience wants to to screw nomi is that like the motivation for watching her journey because like everybody that we see around her wants to screw her even the women so like is that what's being presented to us as the audience or is this really like here we're gonna sort of like everyone's gonna be naked there's gonna be lots of sex but it's all gonna be like very jarring and uh gross and sort of like unrealistic at the same time and some of the music choices i mean i didn't i didn't like hone in on that one during the the scene in the back room at the strip club but overall like aside from the music for like the stage performance i think when they're when they're like coming out of the volcano like that's the only time that the music felt like it fit what i was seeing on screen i was just say i guess i gotta, I gotta agree the a lot of the music in this is just very odd and i mean it's not it's not exactly appealing uh it's it 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 doesn't really fit a lot of what what's going on i don't think uh it's 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 very bizarre um yeah that that i think i I read something where where um one of the two are either a producer or esterhouse or or verhoven was saying like they made some bad music choices as well (laughs) i don't know (laughs) That could have also been a budget thing. They they might not have been able to spend the money to get songs that would have, you know, maybe fit better. Well, they um, spent that $100,000 on Elizabeth Berkeley, I guess. Right. Uh, one other quick thing I, I read was that Quentin Tarantino apparently is a big fan of this movie, even though there's really no feet in the movie. So I'm not really <laughs> sure why this, why this is so high on his list. But his quote is, it was great with a capital great. He didn't like the pool sex scene, but that lap dance was a good scene, man. <laughs> Classic Tarantino. Um, so just one last thing, and then I don't know if Nick, you have any other things you want to cover before we close out. But one of the sliding door moments of this film is 
you know, originally they wanted Madonna for mm-hmm. the for Crystal's role, and then they wanted uh, well, Charlie Theron accepted the role until she read like the full script, and she was just like, "No, I, this is not the direction that I want my career to go." But like, what do you two think this movie would have been if Madonna and Charlie Theron were, you know? in those two two roles would have been i personally think that it would have gone from like a a cheesy b movie to more of a serious movie which i think would have ruined it for me at least and it might not have acquired that cult following that it had i think if they had made that decision Wait a minute. They they were both up for different roles. Madonna was up for Crystal and Charlize was gonna be Nomi. Oh god, that would have been fucking terrible. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> uh so so some of the other people that were um up for the role, Drew Barrymore for Nomi, she would have been terrible. Uh Angelina Jolie. I actually kind of would like to see that version with her in it because i i think she could have pulled that off she's she's done some pretty crazy roles i think she could have pulled off that crazy angelina is crystal he as nomi hmm oh god no god no what no, you don't think so no lord no <laughs> <laughs> Like and show, then also, Showgirls is such a, a unique thing that like thinking about recasting it, it, it totally changes like what the tone and everything would be about the film. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm happy that it didn't happen, but I, I just found it interesting. Oh, Sharon Stone was also considered for the role of Crystal, but I think she had like scheduling conflict or something like that. So I mean, I, I think I think Gina was great. I, I Gina was actually another funny thing that I read was so Gina's character Crystal is supposed to be from Texas. You remember when like the Texas businessman mm-hmm. came up and she's like, I knew she was from Texas. So Verhoeven was very adamant um, that she did not have a Texas accent, but Gina would she, apparently the entire time she was on set she would speak with a Texas accent. So that way nobody would notice when she was actually doing it in the movie. And so you do (laughs) notice she does pull off some, she does have some like, you know, Twain in some of her. Yeah. We hear her say uh, darling. Oh yeah. yeah. She, she definitely does that, especially in her last scene in in the hospital. She's got a cowboy hat. And uh, yeah, at the uh, when they're out at the um, the the diner or whatever, I I think that her character could could definitely work with a different actress. I don't think it would work as well because Gina Gershon is just fucking amazing. Um, but the character of Nomi, I don't think would work with any of these bigger actresses. I think that Elizabeth Berkeley really brings part of that pseudo innocence but also that guarded and um uh you know on on the edge to the character i that i don't really think anybody else could pull off this 
I don't think this I I would enjoy this movie as much without her. Hmm. Yeah, I think she was at a point too where she was like she was more willing and able to take some of the risks that the role required. Wasn't Gina Gershon in Killer Mike? I mean, not Killer Mike. Uh, what's the Matthew McConaughey Killer Joe? Uh, I think so. so yeah, because I mean that was also an NC seventeen. I mean, Gina's great. I love Gina. She's always she's yeah. like she's like nineties erotic thriller, you know to the core and uh she didn't deserve to be nominated for worst actress for this movie if anything she's the one person who's actually keeping it all afloat with her performance yeah she had the she had the most normal acting role of any of the characters she was not very erratic or anything like that for the most part exactly so i um we may be ending getting towards the end here so I was watching the credits. I'm I'm one of those guys. I've watched the credits since I was renting videotapes as a kid in the 80s. Um, mainly because, you know, you'd see things at the end of Evil Dead um, or uh, at the end of Killer Clowns from Outer Space VHS. They had the Dickies uh, music video, um, stuff like that. So I always stuck through the, through the credits. And I always look for the VFX artists and or, or the effects artists and stuff like that. So I was watching the credits for Showgirls, and it got to the end. It said, um, "Showgirls Pictorial Movie Book" by blah blah blah, and I went, "What's that?" So <laughs> I went to look it up, and around the same uh, around the time this was released, they released a uh, a, a book called uh, Showgirls: uh, A Film and Pictures or something like that. And I was like, uh, "That'd be kind of cool to own." you're looking at anywhere from a hundred to five hundred dollars depending on if you want the paperback or the hardcover. <laughs> so, I think you're gonna need the hardcover on that one. Oh uh, well mm. yeah it'll have more structural integrity that's for sure. <laughs> it will. Uh but now it's time that we go to Critics Corner and we get to hear all of the horrible loathsome things that everybody got to say about this movie. We got three zeros to start it off. Uh, so I'll let you choose between L.A. Times, San Francisco Examiner, or the Austin Chronicle. Let's go Austin. I vote Austin. Uh, Austin, yeah. Marjorie 100%. Bumgarten says the story is so shabbily built that it can make no valid claim to motives other than the filmmaker's mercenary desires to cash in on the public's prurient interests. And even on this bottom feeder level, Showgirls fails to deliver the goods. Ooh, that's a scathing takedown. She she didn't like it, obviously. She gave it a zero. Well, she's a total bum gardener, if you ask me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't understand giving a film a zero. Like, I, it feels like a reaction... That is like, I'm going to shit on this in the most, you know, extreme way that I possibly can. Mm -hmm. But when you think about, I mean, think about some of the movies you've watched for this podcast. This one is fairly well made. I mean, yes, it's weird. Yes, there's a lot of things that don't kind of make sense. And it's very like spastic and like, you know, very just like all over the place. But it's not a poorly made film no it's stylish i mean it's it's fairly well made and and so like 
I, I don't understand critics giving movies like this a zero. Like you could not like it, but it's not a zero. It's not a zero. And I think, you know, when I think when critics get mad when they're watching something that they don't like, it's like rather than be reasonable and be level headed and be fair, what you do is you be mean and, you know, you just you stake your claim on that and you're just one of those people that's going to be like, I'm here to hate this movie. And, you know, I'll I'll, I'll be the one that's the first through the wall on that. I think a, a lot of it comes down to the NC-17 rating. It was it was still very new at that point. And True. this was this was the first major theatrical release with an NC-17 rating. And um, it was X prior to that, right? Yeah, it was the X rating, which got co-opted by the porn industry. So you couldn't release a, a, a movie X rated. You had to release release it unrated. But either way, theaters were, were still not going to play your film. Um, so they came out with the NC-17. They said, well, this will fix it. No, this means it's a movie for adults and that's it. But immediately the stigma started, you know, started as soon as it was it, it was created. So and then you got Verhoeven saying, well, I'm going to take advantage of this and I'm going to bring as much nudity and uh, sexual innuendo and whatnot that I can so, of course, all these staunch little movie critics that like to use big words and flowery sentences to describe what the movie's like, we're going to fucking hate it. Um, I think that has a lot to do with it. I think that's a fair point. Next on the docket, we got San Francisco Chronicle, Nick LaSalle. I've read some of his before. He says, what's completely baffling is that everyone in the film thinks Nomi is one heck of a dancer, even though her one move, throwing her arms out stiffly, is straight out of Dr. Strangelove. So he just, <laughs> he gave it a 25 out of 100. He doesn't buy into the fact that she's a good dancer when it boils down to like she got the part because she could do the dance moves that none of the other actresses could. So, uh, you know, I think there's something to be said for that at least. Well, I think nobody in this movie can really dance. I mean, all of them are terrible. Like even like when she and what what's the uh, what's the guy with the dreadlocks name? James. 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 <laughs> James. When when they're on the dance floor at the beginning, when they first meet, he's like, "I could dance," and then they start throwing their arms around, and she's like, "Oh, you can dance." I'm like, "No, he can't. Neither of you can dance. What the fuck?" He's getting into some or, experimental avant-garde dance stuff in the 90s. Or or the scene where he's showing her the part that he wrote and the dance, you know, dance routine that he wrote. And it was like this like weird. There was like a part where it almost was like a flash dance or uh, what's the. Uh, oh, God. Help me out here. Patrick. Uh, Dirty dancing. Dirty, Dirty dancing. Yeah, there was like. You saw that they like almost wanted to do that and then they didn't because, it, you know, clearly like they didn't want to go there. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody really can dance in this movie. It's it's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty crazy. <laughs> OK, so we got uh, we got both Siskel and Ebert in here uh, with different reviews, both giving it a 50. So you got two of the most revered critics of all time, both giving it 50s. I'm going to read both of them. 
Uh, starting with Gene Siskel from the Chicago Tribune says the film's big lap dance sequence is impressive. However, if only for the sheer athleticism of Elizabeth Berkeley's contortion. Later, <laughs> later, when she pulls that same stunt in a swimming pool, we recognize the show for what it is, a male fantasy film in which the women are little more than ragdolls. And uh, Ebert, on the other hand, also gave it a 50. But he says, if the plot and screenplay are juvenile, the production values are first rate. And the lead performance by newcomer Elizabeth Berkeley has a fierce energy that's always interesting. That's Thank way you. that's way more positive, even though they gave it uh, the same score. So Ebert's always one of those guys I like to read because he tends to focus on uh, the most positive aspects of his experience, even though he still scored it only a 50. He didn't you know, he wasn't there to tear the film down. He was actually there to look for what was of value. Or tear, well, he, her, or tear her down. Yes, he, correct. He's one of the few that didn't blame it all on her. Thank thank you, Ebert. Even though you're an asshole when it comes to slasher and horror. <laughs> <laughs> he did not like a lot of horror. And we come ben, to... Ben, wait, Ben wait, had something to say. Did you? Go for it. No, 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 go ahead. Okay. Uh, it, it was already covered. All right, we come to the last one. It is uh, The New Republic, gave it a 60 out of 100. Stanley Kaufman says, what matters much more than the story or the, for some reason, in capitals, spicy stuff is the dancing, the showbiz dancing. It's electric, exciting, and there's lots of it. So I guess he liked the spectacle of the Vegas uh, stage shows and... Gave it a high score because of that. All right, Stanley. I mean, to each their own. That's totally fine. I I uh, I thought it was some of the most ridiculous shit I'd ever seen in my <laughs> life. But uh, <laughs> I've never right. seen a real one, so I have no point of comparison. <laughs> like I said, this is my only. Well, outside of other movies, I I have no experience in a strip club. So I mean, I guess Nick's will have to be the uh, the go to expert on strip clubs. But it it it's. Doesn't seem real to me. I, I I can't imagine that that's actually what it's like. The the strip club stuff, like like regular strip clubs they go to, it's way over the top. It's nothing like that. But Vegas, like shows and stuff, I don't know. Maybe I mean you've got um, not Ferrante and Teicher. They were piano players. Who's the guys with the lions? Siegfried and Roy. Siegfried and Roy, you know, <laughs> you know, they're they're all, you know, explosions and whatnot going on, shit like that. Um, so maybe like the big goddess production numbers are more close to what you see in Vegas. I don't know. But the the and, and I've never been to a Vegas strip club, but normal strip clubs, yeah, you're you're not gonna see anything quite like you saw there. I mean, if I'm going to Vegas and I'm paying top dollar to see a show, I definitely want pyrotechnics and uh, synchronized dancing and maybe some tigers. Never know what you're going to get when you go to Vegas. Depends on the night. Uh, one last quote I want to bring to the table before we wrap things up. Is Kyle McLaughlin later recalled seeing the film for the first time at the premiere? And oh, he, fuck him. <laughs> he says, I was absolutely gobsmacked. I said, this is horrible, horrible. 
And it's a very slow sinking feeling when you're watching the movie and the first scene comes out and you're like, oh, that's a really bad scene. But you say, well, that's okay. The next one will be better. And you somehow try to convince yourself that's going to get better and it just gets worse. And I was like, wow, that's crazy. I mean, I really didn't see that coming. So at that point, I distanced myself from the movie. Now, of course, it has a whole other life as a sort of inadvertent satire. No, satire isn't the right word, but it's inadvertently funny. So it's found its place. It provides entertainment, though not in the way I think originally intended. It was just maybe the wrong material with the wrong director and the wrong cast. So interesting to see that someone that close to it was just like, oh, boy, like I need to distance myself from it. And then like, oh, wait a second. It's sort of found a second life. Maybe it isn't that bad after all. What a piece of shit, man. How you're working for Paul Verhoeven and (laughs) you don't what don't don't speak poorly about Agent Cooper. (laughs) I mean, I love Agent Cooper, but I mean, come on, dude, you're working for Verhoeven. You read the script. I I mean, come on. Must feel weird not having people come on you. I mean, you telling me that you don't understand (laughs) what kind of film this is, dude. And and then you're ashamed of it? Come on. You also, this is it. this is coming from the man who looks like Andy Warhol in this movie. Yeah, he does. That the hair, worst haircut imaginable. It is the worst haircut I've maybe seen by any leading actor that I can remember. It's so, so bad. I even had in my notes, I said McLaughlin has this stupid ass haircut. And <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, like if that's the way that you convey like wealth and power in your movie, like you need to take a step back, go back to the dressing room, get hair and makeup in there and change things up a little bit. He's like, I'm so cool with my bangs. Watch them flip in the wind with my convertible Ferrari. Uh, I love when James is like, that guy gave you flowers. And he's like, he's a pimp. Like that is the farthest thing from a pimp. He, if he's a pimp, that is a weak pimp. Now I wonder if that if that quote came from around. At one point, they they re-released this as a midnight movie. Yeah, it's where so, it gained most of its traction. Okay, yeah, I I didn't see it at that run. I wasn't even aware of it until we rewatched it here. I wonder if that's where that that quote came from, where it was like, "Oh, now I realize it's a satire." Like, dude, you're working for Verhoeven. Do you not have you not you've been in films before? Mm-hmm. Um, you would assume that he knows who Paul Verhoeven is at that point as well. I is familiar with his it? work. Maybe we'd already had Robocop Total Recall, um, unless you took those at face value. But you know what? I think that happened with Starship Troopers, too, Yeah, which came out right after there. A lot of people were like, oh, this is just military propaganda. Um, I'm sorry. Like, no uh, are we watching the same movie? Verhoeven's always, I think, kind of had that problem. I mean, I guess that means it's good. He's good at what he does, where it's like you have to ask yourself whether or not like he's trying to be funny. He's like I say, he's walking like a very fine line. And I think with this movie, especially like it's hard to stay balanced on that line because it is a satire. But then it has like these very misogynistic elements. And so like it's sort of like it's losing its balance on sort of like both sides along the way. And so I think ultimately it's maybe more of like uh, an unbalanced finished product than it is like an outright bad film. And so I'm glad that it is like 
found a second life and that it's got this special like 4k blu-ray release and that people have rallied behind it and you know we're approaching the 30 year anniversary so maybe it does sort of get a re-examination and you know the whole conversation around this might change over the next couple of years do you think maybe the that unbalancedness comes from the esther house uh screenplay yeah, for sure. Because, you know, Verhoeven didn't want to do it after reading the screenplay and then it underwent like massive rewrites. So my my instincts are like, yeah, that was a problem in the vision from the script and then the vision of a guy who's coming off of like what basic instinct Robocop at this point. So, you know, he's got his vision for it. Here's the script. But then he wanted the uh, the actors to not ad lib anything so whatever the revised script was he wanted to have them adhere to that very closely so i mean this is not an easy film to make regardless like even if you were to try to make this today and to sort of rectify the issues that this movie has i don't know that you even even in the most adept hands i don't know that this movie revisited now trying to address some of the issues from then uh like i don't know if you can clean it up and get like the intent of this movie and have it be like a a clean experience no yeah i i think verhoven's the perfect director for this movie i i i i tried to on the second viewing i tried to imagine another director doing this movie I can't I can't really come up with some I mean you know you could have like maybe somebody from like the Roger Corman area era or something but like Verhoeven in every single movie that he makes he 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 does like you said he walks that tightrope of like is this real is it serious is it parody is it you know societal you know uh judgment of you know the times or you know, I mean, look at RoboCop. There's RoboCop is not a straight action film. There's so much going on there. And, mm-hmm. you know, every time you watch it, you kind of get more of that. But like, I love Verhoeven. He's one of my favorite directors. I appreciate everything that he does. And I think because he is so intentional, I think I don't think that anything was just an accident in, in this movie. So absolutely not, man. Absolutely not. Hey, have uh, have either of you seen um, Turkish Delight? No, no. That's it's a very early Verhoeven flick mm. that stars um, R- Rutgerhauer or Rutgerhauer. How do you pronounce it? I say Rutger, but it probably is Rutger. It sounds cooler. Ah, yeah, I, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, well, before we close that, I just want to I, I just want to say my favorite quote from a Verhoeven film starring Rutgerhauer. And here it is. A guy's got his cock stuck. <laughs> what is it stuck in? His zipper. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will give you the opportunity now, since we've reached the end of our runway with Showgirls. Uh, do you have uh, like a comparable movie that if you like Showgirls and you want to recommend another movie in the neighborhood or if you want to try to convince somebody to watch showgirls who's apprehensive what's a movie that's uh somewhere in the ballpark that you would recommend you got one ben you're on mute if you're talking i have one sorry sorry oh. I, I was on mute yeah go ahead i do not have one right now so go ahead oh okay and nick was it was it you that was uh trying to watch a bunch of stripper movies at one point 
yes, the the stripathon that included uh, Magic Mike. We never finished that because we had a lot of stuff going on with the the family yeah. the hospital stuff. So that's sort of on the back burner. But yes, Showgirls was one of the stripathon movies. Yeah, no, no worries. Uh, one one of the ones I suggested towards the end of it. And um, I don't even remember if it was an actual good movie, but I found it very interesting at the time that I watched it. Uh, it's called Dancing at the Blue Iguana. Um, and it had, um, uh, who who was the lady in Splash? Daryl Hannah. I yes. think she's she's in it. Um, I found that one, it's it's way more dramatic, um, but I, I, I found it a, a very interesting film and I would kind of suggest that to others as well. Uh, I, I, it's, you know, this is, this is a trashter piece and it's very unique. <laughs> it's a unicorn. It's a unicorn in a lot of ways. It is. But I guess if I had to recommend something similar, I, I maybe Zola. Yeah. Good choice. That's fairly That's recent too and available for people. Yeah. Yeah. All which right. also has Greg from succession in it, which was a pretty cool, Pretty funny watching him in that movie. Yeah, and it also has Coleman Domingo, who's one of my uh, favorite up and coming actors who doesn't really like get the lead role that I want to see him in, but he's great. What are you guys saying that the movies I suggest are are old and not easily available? What the fuck? <laughs> well, I will look I'm for shocked. Dancing at the Blue Iguana <laughs> because it's on my uh, supplemental stripathon list. So once <laughs> I get back to that, I will put it on. Thank you guys both so much for uh, taking the time to sit down and chat showgirls with me. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. I look forward to you guys getting your uh, show launched and getting into the nitty gritty of other trash to piece movies. I appreciate you having me, Nick, man. It's, it's always a joy having you Ben. Thank you so much for having me here, man. It's been a great joy working with you. Yeah, it was, this was a lot of fun. Thank you, gentlemen, so much. Have yourselves a good night. You night. Too. Thanks. Bye. Thank you once again to both Ben and Nix for taking the time to talk with me and give Showgirls a little bit of a reappraisal. And make sure to keep an eye out for their podcast, Cinema Shit Show. I will put the link in the show notes when it's up and ready. But until then, just keep your eyes peeled. And of course, thank you to everyone who took the time to listen to this episode. I know you've got a lot of choices when it comes to podcasts, and I appreciate you spending your time with us. I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you do, please consider leaving a rating and telling a friend about it. I'd also love to hear from you, so if you have a bad movie you love and or would like to be a guest on the show, you can contact me on Twitter or Instagram at badmovieswelove, L-U-V. This show is an extension of thescheiss.com, and it is recorded, edited, and produced right here in the home studio by yours truly, and now it's fully integrated in the website, too. So until next time, take care, be well, stay safe, and have fun however you get your movies.